Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking today with Wanda Stewart, Garden Life Educator in Oakland, California. Wanda works with children, schools, and communities in the East Bay to put kids back in contact with soil and naturally grown foods, and is using this activity to bring a diversity of urban communities together. I'm very excited to speak with her today and to share our conversation with our followers. Welcome, Wanda. It's, I really appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday morning. Hi. Um, you, were, you were telling me earlier that you kind of started growing because of moving into a house that needed a new fence. Yes. Tell, tell us some more about how that happened. How, like, how, how, the, how did the, the kind of the, the call of the soil or whatever, yes. how did that grab you? Uh, um, so, so first, uh, yeah, I started my current garden in my um, house because I needed a new fence. I'm lucky to live on a corner property, so there's a lot of outdoor spaces. And the gentleman who um, was doing the carpentry work also uh, makes very beautiful gardens. Um, and suggested that I do that while my fence boundaries were down, that it would be easy to take things out and make some big changes. <clears throat> so I did that. But I, but I have to say, uh, and I was a person, let me back up. So I'm originally from Philadelphia, um, real middle-class um, upbringing but still pretty much the concrete jungle we weren't growing anything um except maybe house plants and when i uh started moving west i first moved to sedona arizona and uh made some friends i was working at a boarding school there and made some friends of uh parents of one of my students who were homesteading is what we call it now this was 25 years ago and I don't think uh, we were calling it homesteading then. It's just how they lived. They lived on 40 acres of land. They were growing their own food, growing their own medicine, if you know what I mean. And um, 
and they lived this lifestyle. I'd, I'd go to my friend's house and she'd say, do you want a cup of coffee? And I'd say, sure. And she'd pull out beans and she would grind them and she would cold press them. Again, 25 years ago before that was a hip thing to do. Um, and she taught me about uh, growing your own food and, and homesteading. Um, I then went to another boarding school that was um, in the hills of Santa Barbara. And there we had a 12-acre organic garden that was cultivated by a, a guy by the name of Michael Abelman. And Michael was a parent at the school as well. Um, but he's also the guy that started Sunburst Farms, which was the first er organic urban farm. Um, it probably goes back some now 40 years. Um, so I was living in a situation where I was eating organic vegetables. I got to consume them. I could send my kid, you know, I had a house on the campus and the whole thing. I could send my kids over to the garden and say, go pick whatever vegetables you want for dinner and bring them home and I'll cook them for you and get some eggs from the chickens while you're at it. So that was a really wonderful way to live. And then when I moved to Berkeley, I got here and found um, a gentleman charging $8 a dozen for farm fresh eggs. Wow. Um, right. And, um, it, and it was crazy. I, I, I went to the farmer's markets here. And, you know, when, when you live in Santa Barbara at the farmer's market, the farmers have usually only traveled a couple of miles, you know, from where they are. So stuff is really cheap. You can go and get um, fish, you know, before it's gotten to the market because you go to the dock and you just buy it directly from the fishermen. So I had, was really used to all this well-sourced food and then could not replicate that in Berkeley. So when the, the carpenter said, do you want to put a farm, uh, garden in your house? That's when I said, yeah, um, to try to start doing it. Uh, 10 years later, I've got um, a nearly 100% edible landscaping at my house lots of fruit trees, and it's a very small postage stamp of an area. But um, I discovered that I could grow food and I could do it well. And I just kept doing it as a hobby while I was working in a school. Um, then I got laid off by the school and that's when I decided to um, try to make a career or a living anyway out of growing food and teaching people to do it. So when you were at the school, the, the, the position you just mentioned, uh -huh. what, what were you doing? Uh, were you in the classroom? Um, I was the director of admissions and diversity. Okay. So um, my, my time in schools were about, about marketing, um, about enrollment. And then with the diversity piece, um, you know, so these are private schools. Um, they have to some degree tended to be full of, you know, quote unquote, rich white kids. Um, those schools wanted a more diverse student population. Um, and I developed quite the reputation for being able to be a bridge person and work between cultures and work across difference um, to build community. So that's what I was doing down All right. boarding All right. schools. Yeah.
And then you brought that back into the vegetables. Right, exactly. So um, when did race come into it? Uh, so for me, I was just growing vegetables and doing what I do. Um, when I was laid off and had the um, fortunate circumstance to be able to have unemployment, I used that time to start volunteering in schools. Um, because I figured that I could take my understanding about schools and somehow blend it with my understanding of food and the need to do that. Uh, and then at some point, there's a particular photograph that I keep close that I found on Facebook. And it was of four ex-slave women. So it was a picture that was taken in 1925 at an ex-slave convention. And these four women, all of them were over 100 years old in the photograph. Wow. And they, one of them was 125 in the photograph. And they are yeah. these sort of gnarled faces um, that, you know, look like what they've been through. But they're all standing straight and tall and powerful. And I looked at this picture and I heard myself think, man, slavery must not have been that bad. And after I sort of flogged myself for even having the thought or to say something, think something like that, I allowed myself to wonder what it was about their circumstance that allowed them to be standing straight and tall at 125 uh, when they'd actually been through slavery. And what I came up with is, one, they'd been eating organic vegetables all of their lives. They'd been eating what they grew. Two, they'd been working really hard with their physical bodies to do that. Um, and that they had community around that, right? That these were a bunch of people that survived because of their ability to work together and tend the soil. And then lastly, they had a spiritual connection with the land. And we know about what getting your hands in soil does for your whole being. And then as I continued to think about that, I realized that, you know, my people, we went running from those plantations, right? And understandably, so we were running from the trauma. But when we did that, we left our greatness. We left our ability to have healthy bodies. We left our ability to have community. We left our ability to know that God and spirit is in the soil and will carry us through. Um, it's like that connection to the land got broken at the same time. It, it completely, completely. So, you know, now when I'm in schools, you know, you go into a new school, one of the first things you have to do, depending on who goes to those schools, is talk about, no, you don't look like a slave. Or if you do look like a slave, why would that necessarily be a bad thing? Right. Um, I've had to deal with uh, my students honestly being beaten because they came home with their sneakers dirty, right? So um, I decided in all of this that, um, that I believe that if, so permaculture, right? Permaculture is about creating a, um, a permanent agriculture, right? And a permanent also, culture. But also a permanent <laughs> social culture. And, um, I believe that if, if 
black folks don't get it together, we're not even going to be on the planet, right? Certainly not the American version of us. And I believe we got to go back to the site of our trauma and revisit that and reclaim all of the gifts and power that we left there. Um, so I decided to start teaching kids to grow food. And uh, one, the, the main school I'm in is a pretty large garden on the, um, on sort of relative to other school gardens. It's about 75 feet by 75 feet square in terms of what's cultivated. Um, and my kids are learning to grow food and they're learning how to tend the earth. And, you know, right now we're mulching all over the place. And um, those kids are primarily black, Latino and Arabic. Um, the Arabic students are primarily from Yemen, although not entirely. Um, South, some Southeast Asian kids. Um, there's two white boys in the whole school. And we need to learn how to all get along. And we're doing it by um, growing food and by working and what, with garden. What kind of dirty sneakers responses are you getting from the parents? Ah, well, you got to understand these are pretty much um, uh, poor kids or not as well, poor in terms of financial resources but their parents value clothing and sneakers. So you'll see these, you know, third and fourth graders wearing sneakers that cost 80, 90, a hundred dollars. Um, so on, in some respect, I try to be respectful about why somebody would be angry that a hundred dollar sneakers came home dirty. Right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but they also, our parents are, um, you know, they have their own traumas. So the kids come home with the dirty sneakers and, and, and they corporally punish them for doing that. And these are kids that had been in the garden with me. Um, I've created a dig pit where, because there are some kids that can only just dig. There are the kids that will, oh, I want to learn how to plant seeds and I want to learn how to collect this and I'll help you till the soil. There are many, many kids that just need to be free to dig in the dirt. Sure. And, and I love that. And it calms them down and it cools them out. Mm -hmm. um, they let those of us who want to grow some food do that in peace. But, um, you know, they're the kids whose parents um, punish them. And, and you know... I had to talk to the kids and say, all right, I'll have respect for your parents because they put a lot of money into those sneakers. But I'll be honest with you. I don't think people should spend that much on sneakers for kids that are going to outgrow them. And if you guys have parents who are going to punish you for those kinds of things, then I'm going to teach you how to manage that. So I talked to them about go home, find an old pair of shoes that nobody cares about. They might even not know they're there anymore. You bring them to school, you leave them here, that's what you bring and you wear to garden. And that keeps you out of trouble. Um, but then they went, oh, I got in trouble because my socks were dirty. And, um, you know, I can get angry about that too until you think about the parent who 
has their kid in a uniform, they have two uniforms, they have a certain amount of socks, and you don't have a washing machine in your house. And to, for your kid to have clean clothes, it's a whole, haul the whole family to the laundromat, sometimes on public transportation, it's a whole thing. So trying to figure out how to do all this um, and take everybody's perspective into account um, is important. But for Black folks in particular, we have a whole psychology around um, um, not being dirty and not looking like a slave. Yeah, and, I was gonna. I was. I was gonna say earlier that it's. You know, I'm living here in Spain now, uh -huh. and the the only thing I think that has got people focused on gardening for themselves mm -hmm. in this society is the austerity that came in with the financial crash mm -hmm. some years back, where more than 50% of the people, and particularly people under 30, mm -hmm. fell through the cracks of the system. And like the, the people who understand what needs to change in, in this society, for the most part, are living as squatters now. Wow. Right? And so they're having to learn to do for themselves, and they're having to break through what was a multi-generational aversion to working right. in the soil. Because That's right. Because grandparents had come from poor farming. Right. And when they moved to the city, they were like, we're not doing that anymore, you know? If we're going to have a garden, it's because we're successful enough to pay someone else to take care of it. Exactly. And so there is this... this it's like an icon or iconography around touching the soil, which is, of course, the most nourishing thing you could possibly do on all levels. Yep. yep. And a sense of somehow being less than. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I actually don't let my kids know that I have gloves for them. Right. And every now and then they, they used to ask for them, but we need gloves to do the gardening. I'm like, no, you don't. You only need gloves if you're like cutting, stigging nettles. Other than that, we're good. Let's get our hands in the soil and, you know, you'll wash your hands when you're done. Um, yeah, but it works. Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, there's that expression that's sort of like the whole world is, your, is in your hands in the garden. Yeah, that's right. But what you're experiencing is that in order to get them into the garden, you need to take on the whole world. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, at this particular school garden, even to this day, and it's this beautiful blossoming garden with all of this harvest, and we've been taking the food and feeding it to the families. There are still parents that think we shouldn't have a school garden. Incredible. Um, and, and, you know, people get stuck where they get stuck. Um, I also know, though, that we're feeding our whole world of little West Oakland. Um, West Oakland is the, the place in the East Bay where everybody goes, you know, this is a food desert. And we've got a little oasis going on in our part of the food desert. And nobody's going hungry. Um, it's amazing the amount of food that we were able to cultivate with kindergarten through fifth grade labor. And when the kids, so there's a, I've only been at the school for a year and there's a transition that's happening in the community that has been real organic in nature. 
Um, but things like um, our entire school loves chayote. Do you know what chayote is? I, I do, but what, why don't you explain it for the listeners who might not? Yeah, so uh, chayote is a perennial squash that's sort of shaped like an avocado. It sort of almost looks like a light green avocado. Um, and it's a delicious, delicious um, vegetable. That's great to grow because it comes back time and time again. It grows vertically um, on fences and it's a very beautiful, beautiful plant. And we have probably 150 linear feet of chayote at the school because that's how big our fences are. And the Latino kids pretty much knew what chayote was. Um, their parents use it in soups and different things like that. The black kids had never heard or seen of a, ch a chayote. And then I cooked them some, and I just quickly, within the context of the classroom, sauteed it with some sea salt and um, some garlic and then a little bit of coconut oil. And all of the kids love chayote. And so now the new thing, because it's in season right now, everybody's picking chayotes and coming up with new ways to cook it. And um, and then they bring me back the samples of the food that they make. Super. Um, but one of the grandmothers who works with us came in and she said, you know, somebody told me that chayote uh, lowers your blood pressure and lowers your blood sugar. Yeah, it's an anti-diabetic. That's right. She came in the other day. Her blood sugar was down to 145 and it had been 230. Whoa. 245. So, and she came in telling everybody about it, right? So now we've got this, we're getting um, a little bit of momentum going around the notion of food as medicine. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful to see those kinds of changes happening in the school. You know, so when I told the kids the story of Granny and her blood sugar, one of the kids raised their hand and said, wait a minute, when you say blood pressure, you mean diabetic? When people are diabetic and they um, are checking their blood, they prick their finger in the morning? I said, yeah. He says, oh, my goodness, my grandmother does that. Can I take some home? Right. Um, I have kids that eat the stems of collard greens like they're carrots, right? And, um, and they're learning. I'm even proud of this. They don't focus so much on washing the vegetables. You know, it used to be when we would first pick some of our food, they go, but we can't eat it till we wash it. And I'm like, you know, yeah, you can. It's been raining. It's good. We don't have any pesticides on our food. You can just go ahead and eat it. Maybe not the carrot. That'll be kind of grungy. But everything else, go ahead and eat it. Um, so now they go out into the garden and they just go through and graze and find what they can find and that is beautiful thing to see that's beautiful and yeah. what, what is the age range of, of the kids you're working with uh, so um because i'm at three schools i'm working with kids from kindergarten all the way through to their senior year in high school but okay. these kids that i'm talking about in the big school garden um you know like in the other schools we have some raised boxes and and that's really nice and we're growing good food, but at this uh, Hoover Elementary School, it's called, it's um, kindergarten through fifth grade, and we've just cultivated in ground. 
So you're giving them something they will carry the rest of their lives. I tell them that they'll never, let me just say this. These are kids who are hungry. When I first started there last year, I, it was really alarming how many kids were coming to school hungry. Um, in one of my first weeks at the school, one of the first grade boys, he threw a chair at the wall, right? And I said to him, why are you acting this way? You weren't acting this way before. What's wrong with you? And he looked at me without thinking about it and said, because I'm hungry, right? And that's when I realized, and I was new to the school, everybody else already knew, that these kids were really like very, very hungry, actively hungry. And so now we have ways um, to put food um, in their bellies in real time during school. Um, and so, I, so these kids know hunger is my point. So when I say to them, we're gonna grow this garden so you don't have to be hungry anymore, right? So that you're gonna always be able to feed your children and your families. And they know what that means. Um, and take that to heart, right? So, um, and, and they also, these kids are very, again, because we're poor and almost everybody is some sort of immigrant. Uh, when Donald Trump was elected, our kids were pretty freaked out. I mean, we had, you know, our Mexican kids. He's going to build a wall. Our family's moving back to Mexico, but I wasn't born there, but I'm going to have to go. Um, little, you know, Yemeni girls in hijabs. Donald Trump is going to kill us all, right? Um, so these are kids that very much understand in very real ways the times we're in right now. So, um, and, and for instance, I mean, our Yemeni kids, they've seen war. You know, one, a fifth grader stood up and told the other kids, you all don't understand. I watched a building be bombed and it killed 700 people, right? And this is a fifth grader talking. So um, they have a deep appreciation and understanding for the perilous times that we're living in. So when I say to them that they will be able to survive it by growing food and that I will teach them how to make medicine out of weeds, right? And which foods to eat for what illnesses, they take that to heart. We're gonna take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D. A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Wanda Stewart, Garden Life Educator from Oakland, California. So when you, when you spoke earlier about this, basically this, this, this spot being an oasis in the food desert. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's that aspect or there's a, um, a definition or an interpretation of, 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 of that, of, of that spot, of that which involves, which myth. involves myth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the garden is also becoming a place of refuge. Um, our, our, the physical footprint of the school is gigantic. It's about two city blocks square. Um, I, I can't even explain how it's gigantic and it's mostly all concrete except for the back of the school where we have this garden. And um, the footprint is surrounded by a 10 foot high uh, fence with spikes on the top and everyone calls it Fort Hoover. Um, our kids are kids who they do what they call play fighting, right? Where they just, uh, to someone walking up who doesn't know them, it looks like they're fighting. And they're like, no, 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 we're playing. And it's uh, very shortly that, um, that, that play fighting becomes real fighting. Um, we always have uh, more than our share of kids who are just angry and hurt um, and bring those issues to school. So the garden is now a refuge for kids that just want to be quiet, right? Um, it's also becoming a wonderful place for kids to go and just be in nature. Um, one young girl, I was asking the kids what they wanted to see in our garden, all the kinds of features they'd like to have. And, you know, they talked about chickens and we talked about a pond for frogs and lizards and all these kind of things. And one little girl said, we need a place for the gnomes and fairies. And what I'm watching now are that their, their imagination is coming alive. Um, whether it's, um, whether they're making cakes in the dig pit out of mud and cinder blocks and pieces of wood they've discovered. Um, they are going up under a elderberry tree that's beginning to grow up and provide some shade because there wasn't even shade on our garden um, not in our garden but because we like that we don't have shade in the garden but there's no shade in the entire school grounds right so if it goes to 95 degrees here on our playground measurably it's 120. sure because right? it's paid. just because the heat mm -hmm. yeah. so the garden is a refuge for shade it's where you can go and look for the gnomes and the fairies um, we have butterflies everywhere, um, and they—they're they, just—they're not used to having that, right? And being able to run free and play. Um, a local tree company brings their mulch to us, and as a result, we've got 32 square yards of eucalyptus and redwood mulch sitting on our playground, and. They turn it into places to play. They're digging holes and trying to make the holes connect. Well, that's called engineering. They um, wonder when they dig a really deep hole while steam starts coming up. Like, why is steam in the wood pile? Great science going on. They yeah, take yeah. the cardboard yeah. boxes that I intend to lay down under the mulch for sheep mulching to get rid of our grass. They use the cardboard boxes 
like sleds and slide down the mounds of the um, the wood chips. And again, these are kids that don't often get those kinds of natural experiences just to be able to run and jump and tumble in the wood chips without getting hurt and scraped up by concrete is a refuge. Um, it's also becoming a refuge for kids who just, for whatever reason, can't be in the classroom and need a break, right? So I can't hold it together. I'm disrupting the class. Uh, the teacher can't teach. My friends can't learn. They can send me out to the garden and I'll dig with Miss Wanda for a little bit, calm myself down and go on back into the classroom and learn some more. Um, so refuge is absolutely right. Uh, what else would I say? The other thing, you know, when you introduce me as the garden slash life educator, I also tell the kids that if I can teach them to grow a seed, I can teach them to grow themselves. And if I can teach you to grow a garden, then we can also grow a community. And this is a community that is rapidly changing uh, because of gentrification. So it's also becoming a place where folks of all different walks of life can come. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You just have to be willing to get dirty. And we're exchanging information and exchanging how to cook crops and how to grow certain things and um, getting to be friends and learning how to be neighbors. So I really do have a larger agenda than simply growing food. Um, that's just the lens that we're using to change the world. Yeah, so I was yeah, gonna, so ask, I was gonna you, ask you what you, what you on this on this. Sorry, but you started just started to talk, about, to how talk this, about how this pulling community, pulling community together. Uh -huh. and you have an agenda. You have an agenda. Right. So could you talk so a little bit more about what you see the possibility down the road? Where you'd like to see this grow? Um, for this particular garden, I want to see people of all ages, all races, all economic uh, categories um, hanging out together in the garden and the garden becomes a place to do community. There's a lady that wants to do yoga out there. We can have concerts out there. Um, we don't just simply have to work um, and you know create this farm. Um, I wanna create a place where our students and parents feel real ownership and then the surrounding neighborhood uh, also feels very included in that. Um, and I think if we can do it at Hoover Elementary, that we can replicate that all over the country. And all, I mean, permaculture says you start where you are personally. So my zone zero is my house and my family, and that's what I'm working to build. Um, and then my zone number one is that circle moves out are the kids in this wonderful school. And then the neighborhood around that 
and then the East Bay, and then California, and so on and so on and so on. Um, because in this growing food thing, I mean, we need to heal our bodies. Um, and we need to heal our souls. And we need to heal the earth and take care of the soil um, in ways that turns climate change and all the challenges, real world challenges that we're facing around. Um, and it can all happen, I think, in the simple act of growing food. And certainly there are all other kinds of ways to help save the world. Um, certain technology is one of those. Um, but none of us is going to be safe. None of us is going to be healthy. Um, we aren't going to be able to save this planet if we don't start with the soil and the food that we put in our bodies. Uh, so that's why I choose that. It's also what I know how to do best. Well, that's beautiful. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, um, that's probably a good that's point probably for us. For us. Um, okay. So thanks so much, so for, thanks your so much for your time. Oh, that was easy. No problem. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what um, Barcelona. I, you know, I, so my other thing is networking people and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I was. Th I, I have a a dear friend in Barcelona. His name. I think he's in Barcelona. He moves around a good little bit. But his name is Quentin Jenkins, and he's a fantastic DJ. And and sort of party monger guy. I actually know him pretty well. No way. <laughs> yeah, I met, him in, I met him in Amsterdam. That's right. Oh my god. Um, so Quentin is. Oh my god, I love Quentin. That's my baby. I met Quentin. Um, we lived together. No, we didn't live together. We lived in Sedona, Arizona, at the same time That's before he moved to Europe. Really, really small world material. Yeah. Yeah. Really small yeah, world. Tell him I said hello, please. I would definitely do that. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.